0: with corroded cables, summer valley line hopes are oxidizing. This week, the valley line is probably delayed again. And just like the city does a little bit too much, it's going even further into overtime.
1: Plus, we got a substantial overhaul to the city's organizational structure. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are
0: Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 225. Our previous episode, 224, Mac, got a lot of feedback, I think more than we've ever gotten for an episode before. And we've done a lot of episodes on a lot of controversial stuff.
1: Yeah, more than we typically get anyway, maybe not the most ever. But you know, hearing from councillors during the election, I think we certainly heard from listeners. But yeah, lots of feedback, both positive and negative people agreeing with us in some ways, disagreeing with us in other ways, just as councils hearing a lot about zoning bylaws, so did we.
0: And like we said in the previous episode, we really do want to get into the nuts and bolts of the zoning bylaw now that it is in a tangible form and less speculative. And we'll be having a guest on in the near-ish future. No plans yet, but we'll have something uh, to really dig into the meat and potatoes of it. And thank you for the feedback. Keep it coming. We'd love to hear from you. Unless your feedback is that you don't like the rapid fire segment, I get that one a lot. Here's another one for you. With the passing of Bill C-18, sometimes referred to as the Link Tax Bill, Meta has announced that Facebook will no longer allow the sharing of Canadian news. This leaves some worrying that Facebook will become even further entrenched in conspiracy theories and fake news, as users are prohibited from sharing news from reputable organizations like CBC and CTV, and instead can only share outlets like InfoWars, Flat Earth Daily, Lizard People Digest, and... What the hell, Facebook? Why did you just let me post a Taproot article? The Edmonton Downtown Farmers
1: Market will be moving again, citing the lease on their current space as being prohibitively high to their operations. The organization, which had great success and universal acclaim on 104th Street as a walkable urban market, has vowed to, quote, look at all the possibilities, including, but not limited to, increasing the quantity of free parking, finding a location outside the Henday, and increasing their ad spend to communicate that Yes, parking is free.
0: A Westmount backyard that caved into the next door infill site after heavy rain has earned a stern warning from city officials. In a release from the Planning and Development Department, the city said, quote, The new zoning bylaw, which permits cave dwelling in the RS small-scale residential zone, is not in effect yet, so we remind developers that they must continue to build with rafters and not stalactites. As well, the mature neighborhood overlay has not been repealed yet, so all that spelunking must continue to occur from the lane. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton.
1: And this episode is once again brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. Want to feel great about your city? Check out the ECF's Well Endowed podcast. If you live in Edmonton, chances are you've been touched by the work being done with the support that ECF provides to the city's shakers, movers, and doers. On the Well Endowed podcast, you will hear stories about ECF's donors and grantees, and all the ways they use this support to build and sustain social initiatives, empower youth, strengthen arts and culture, and so much more. Hear these stories about our local heroes and community builders at thewellendowedpodcast.com or find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, Troy, just quickly on Bill C-18, I think it's a funny joke, but I have to just quickly address it. Sure. I think it is a link tax. I think it's an absurd policy position to think that we're going to charge you for what is the currency of the web, which is a link, but only if your name is Google or Meta and nobody else. Uh, And, they, you know, they called their bluff, essentially. And so it's not surprising that we're heading down this road where both Google and Facebook are going to stop sharing links to Canadian news sites. And that's going to do a lot more harm to news organizations in Canada than, you know, what Bill C-18 was supposed to do would have resulted in, in, in any sort of benefit. Like, it will definitely do more harm than good. I think organizations like Taproot, less affected by this, of course. I mean, yes, it's bad if our stuff stops appearing inside, you know, Google, when you do a search for something, I think that's bad overall, if you're looking for information to not have good quality news sources show up amongst those results. But a couple of things, I'm not sure that we will be excluded, because we wouldn't have been eligible for any funding through this C18 thing anyway. So maybe we're exempt from being blocked. I don't know the details <laughs> on what Google's going to do there. And then the second thing is we're not selling eyeballs, of course, like we don't care if we have a huge ton of, you know, traffic that comes to us from Google, because we're not, selling ads against that traffic. That's not how we make our money. We have memberships and you know sponsors and supporters in our email newsletters and we have people who subscribe to get taproot. So I think we'll be less affected than you know you'll hear a lot in the in the coming weeks, I'm sure, about how news publications are going to be you know, really detrimentally affected by this decision by by both Google and Meta.
0: Now you're obviously more tapped into the media landscape in Canada than I am, but when I read the endless escapades of c18 i couldn't help but be reminded of the city you know when we are thinking about installing a bike lane we're like well how could we invent the concept of a bike lane in edmonton ignoring that the rest of the world has already done this australia has already done this and facebook quite predictably Banned news in Australia like we knew this was going to happen because we've seen it happen before. Basically, one for one. This was the most predictable of outcomes.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what is the incentive to Google and Facebook to pay up here? Like, I don't think they have one. So they don't. Lots of people are looking at this and saying they make so much money the least they could do is pay a little bit more to the Canadian publishers. But they're looking at it like, why would we set that precedent in one jurisdiction and have that potentially be impacted elsewhere? And I think also quite rightly pointing out that it actually doesn't do anything to solve the core problem of what ails journalism and what what ails media. It's not that Google is linking to those news sites for free. That is the core problem behind why they're you know, tanking.
0: Yeah. And for sure, if we're just doing the quantity of money argument, the federal government collects $200 billion in personal income taxes every year. Why haven't they given Taproot a grant funding to hire a student? You know, here, 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 here. Yeah. We could use a little bit more of that money. The city, too, uh, could use some more money, which is why city council passed OP-12 in the last budget. Recall this was the motion that directed administration to find $60 million in savings over four years and reallocate another $240 million of city funding to core services and council priorities from ostensibly not core services and councils, not priorities. And uh, we had a pretty big movement on OP-12, not in terms of actual dollar amounts recovered. But in terms of organizational and structural change, we found a release that the key departures we talked about at the City of Edmonton are actually going to be permanent structural changes.
1: That's right. So we had reported previously on former Deputy City Manager of Employee Services leaving the city and also the former Deputy City Manager of Communications and Engagement. So that's Kim Armstrong and Catherine Owen, respectively. And in this news release from the City Manager, he's now made it official that he's not replacing Those two positions, and that reduces the number of departments at the city from seven to five. So we still have city operations, community services, financial and corporate services, integrated infrastructure services, and urban planning and economy. They're all very wordy department names, Um, but those other two are gone. And the idea here is that the leadership there will be folded into the office of the city manager, which is, again, kind of like another department in a way. Right. The office of the city manager. You know, I think to some degree that could make sense. Right. Employee services is really HR in most organizations. That's what you can think of it as. And for that to fall directly under the city manager is not uh, an unwise thing from my point of view. The communications and engagement one is interesting because that department has kind of yo-yoed back and forth so many times over the years from being distributed so that each individual you know branch and program had its own communications people to being centralized in the way that we had it um, with Catron Owen or more centralized at least. A little less surprising I suppose that we're going to see more change to that department it feels like it's always been in flux.
0: One thing that I'll say is that, you know, oftentimes when there's these organizational changes, it tends to not be that big of a change, right? The yeah. frontline yeah. work still continues. And I don't know if this is me conflating correlation with causation, but one thing I've noticed in the past two, three months, the city of Edmonton communications department has gotten substantially, I don't want to say better, but has gotten substantially more robust in their communication. A couple examples of this are, I recall, you know, several years ago where there was, for example, the Atta Boulevard Bridge that didn't have a railing installed on it. And the official communication strategy from the city of Edmonton was to deny that a fence was ever supposed to be there for three weeks until they installed one and said, the fence was always there. You guys are all wrong and just gaslit the public constantly. And this was a sort of par for the course city communication strategy, belligerent and non-communicative. But in the past couple of weeks, one of the things is I tweeted a bit sarcastically about Stadium Station having fencing put up. Within a day, the city responded, yes, this was due to an event. We're sorry that we left it up. It should have been removed and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. And they did that in a public tweet, which was a very refreshing change of pace. I had sarcastically tweeted about a Marvin the Meatball and about a week ago, a package showed up my door. The City of Edmonton comms department sent me a Marvin the Meatball t-shirt with a note that says, to Marvin's biggest fan, which (laughs) they knew exactly what they're doing. It's at the tailor now. The photo shoot will be coming soon because they had to know if they did this, I'm going to go take a photo shoot downtown and tweet about it. This is the kind of sort of like, I almost want to say scrappy startup style communication strategy that like we haven't seen from the city before and that we're starting to see now. The other thing I've noticed is that counselors are doing a lot more ribbon cuttings now. It could be COVID, you know, ramping down pandemic styles. But almost everything the city does, there's now a media availability. Someone's cutting a ribbon. Someone's doing a speech. It's more attention. It's more out there. And I think this has been a change recently, maybe due to the change in leadership, maybe just doing a change in direction or maybe due to nothing at all. But it's something I've noticed.
1: It's obviously true. There's some changes. You've noticed it. I, I think the question becomes, is that because they've been rudderless, to some degree, without a leader? Or is it, you know, something beyond that? And and will it continue now that, you know, those teams are folded into the office of the city manager effectively? Because, of course, you know, most of the people actually doing the work, the person responding to you on Twitter and sending you the T-shirt, you know, those people haven't changed, right? The people actually getting the things done at the end of the day are probably all the same. This is mainly around the the leadership changes that were communicated this week, right? So that remains to be
0: seen. For sure. But one thing I will say is we've long criticized that for the most part, the people at the city, we all have the same experience. They do want to do great work. They're yeah. trying their best. But the big complaints we have are, leadership changes, unable to actually get this agenda done because of hesitant or risk-averse leadership. So
1: this is a potential risk with this change, right? Because now there's a consolidation under
0: Andre corbold the city manager,
1: even further than we had before. Although one thing that I thought was interesting is that Uh, In addition to reducing the size of the departments, the number of departments and reducing the size of those leadership teams, which is something that, you know, the unions and the auditor and others in the past have suggested we should do, like maybe the size of our management got a little out of hand. They've actually created some new positions here as well, which was kind of intriguing. So the executive leadership team which used to be called the senior leadership team, the corporate leadership team. They've had various names for this over the years. It's essentially all the deputy city managers and a few others. That team still exists, but now they will have a new chief of staff and a chief climate officer. Andre Corbold's executive leadership team, Troy, is going to have a chief climate officer.
0: When I saw this, my first reaction was excitement. This seems like a... uh... Acknowledgement that climate change is real and materially affecting Edmontonians and an important city priority. Then I thought about it a little bit more. It could be that, and I'm hopeful it's that. I also fear that now there's a fall guy, right? So rather than climate change is the entire city's responsibility and it needs to be tightly integrated in all city work and there needs to be carbon budgeting on every item, instead it's that guy, the climate officer's job. And if the city doesn't do a good job on climate, we fire him at the end of the term. And that absolves us of all responsibility. That is, of course, you know, a risk that we've hired a fall guy. I hope it's not that. I hope it's taking climate seriously.
1: Yeah, in the news release, uh, Andre said, this team of leaders will ensure that the city's actively considering environment and inclusion when we're making decisions about building our city. So hopefully it's, you know, what you're after and uh, and not a way to offload it somewhere else. You know, as you say, changes happen all the time. You know, the, city, the, the joke is that the city's always reorganizing. The last thing in this news release I just want to mention quickly that caught my eye is about Edmonton Fire Rescue Services in particular, which has been in the media recently and Post Media and others for some Cultural issues, and to put it uh, lightly, concerns about harassment and other things. Uh, they've reduced the number of deputy fire chief positions from five to three and added some assistant deputy fire chiefs at a lower level. So some changes going on at the fire services department. And they said this this should help with supports for the workforce, including mental health, which is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, of course, you know, these reductions, it's a couple high-level staff members, which, you know, do have material salaries, but it's not going to get us to $60 million. No. Though we did find out that there is a line item that's going to get us, you know, above that $60 million in terms of costs, and that's overtime. Overtime has increased quite substantially over the past five years, we found that over time, in 2022 was $39 million, which is about $17 million higher than it was in 2018. So this represents a pretty substantial growth.
1: Yeah, the city auditor took a look at this and made four recommendations because they found, you know, some shortcomings. So it's not just the cost that's gone up, you know, that's about 3% of the personnel expenses budget, like it's not insignificant, but there's some other things here too that that led to that. So one is guidance on overtime management is out of date. A lot of supervisors, it turns out that they spoke to, were unaware that they had tools to help them manage overtime and that the city wasn't kind of holistically looking at overtime to try to manage costs. So they didn't actually have any effective reporting on, on that aggregate overtime in order to make different decisions. And so those are the four recommendations that the city auditors made to try and address those things and try to keep you know the amount of overtime in, in check. And that's a good thing for our fiscal responsibility, of course. But when I read this, I thought, yeah, you know, that that's a sizable increase. It's quite a bit of money in overtime, but it pales in comparison to how much we spend on consultants, let's say, or change requests for that kind of stuff, which the auditor has pointed out in the past as well. So I just think it's important to try and put these numbers into some context.
0: And of course, you know, if you have a couple employees working overtime and that prevents us from hiring two new full-time equivalents, there certainly could be savings. These overtime numbers weren't presented against how many full-time equivalents this overtime replaced. Right, So that's a key piece of context that we don't really have on these numbers.
1: We do know from uh, the audit committee meeting that a lot of the overtime was with transit workers and the fire department. And that was kind of related to staffing concerns that lots of different uh, industries faced coming out of the pandemic and also something about uh, potentially delayed training. So not, you know, getting to train people in the same process as we used prior to the pandemic. So again, it's not like, doesn't seem like people, you know, padding their hours uh, to try (laughs) to to boost the amount of money they're making. hard to have a much of an issue with another, what, $12 Twelve million dollars, seventeen million dollars. It's not a huge amount in the grand scheme of things.
0: And of course, the largest budget item in the city of Edmonton, the Edmonton Police Service, also had uh, overtime. That overtime number we cited was just city employment, um, which doesn't include EPS. But EPS separately reported that they too had an increase in overtime from ten point three million just the year before in twenty twenty one to fifteen point nine million in twenty twenty two. And the other largest budget line item in the city of Edmonton, also in overtime, is the Valley Line LRT. And Mac, you'll recall earlier this year, I staked my podcaster card that the Valley Line LRT would open before Folkfest. Folkfest is rapidly approaching. It's summer months. I am sweltering in my room now. I know. <laughs> I was very excited when this week TransEd announced that they had completed their current step in um, their construction process, which was sort of full line systems testing, and they were getting prepared to continue testing and submit their safety certification. And then a couple hours after they announced that, they said that they're going to replace around 140 kilometers of signal cable because it's corroded and oxidized. And that might take six to eight weeks. And the whiplash experience here, Mac, um, really... Really hurt my podcaster credentials. <laughs> well, I was
1: not ever thinking that this was going to open as soon as you did. I was really hopeful that we wouldn't end up with yet another delay. Although it seems likely that's what this is going to lead to.
0: Though of note, we don't have evidence this will cause a delay because TransEd hasn't announced any opening timeframe. So if they haven't told you when it was going to open. Can it really be delayed? If a delay comes from an unannounced service opening, did the tree ever fall in the forest? You know, <laughs> the old parable. It will take six to eight weeks to deal with this copper cables. Though Transit has said they will still be submitting their safety certification. So perhaps the rest of the finalization process is running in parallel to this upgrade. And maybe it doesn't cause a delay in that case.
1: I mean, I noticed uh this week there haven't been any trains downtown since this news came about. Or at least I've not seen them. Usually I see several uh every day on my way to and from, you know, the daycare. And uh so I wonder if if uh they had just stopped entirely and if that would be a bad thing. I suppose, you know, they've been testing those trains for so long now that stopping them for a couple of weeks to fix them Cables probably isn't going to dramatically impact things, although you said they're still running trains in some places, potentially.
0: TransEd has announced that they won't be running trains on the areas where they are actively upgrading cables. So perhaps in our anecdotes, I too haven't seen many trains driving around, but we are on the north half of the line. Maybe they're just replacing the cables up here and running the trains down in the Millwoods area. I will say, and I risk once again compromising my podcaster card on this and being labeled Uncharacteristically optimistic. Mac, I think this might be good news. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How is that possible? So, obviously, it's not the best possible news. The best possible news is the line is open, everything's perfect. But what I would say is if you are trans ed right now um, and you have this beleaguered line that had things like the concrete cracking pillars, yeah, the biggest thing you're fighting against is the idea. That your line is not safe. It's not safe to operate and it's not safe to accept passengers. So, this corroded cables, they were quite expressive in all the releases that they didn't need to do this. This would have been fine. It would have been deferred maintenance. And, you know, it, it's easier to do now than down the line, mm-hmm. which is an appropriate line to present. I think a safety inspector might have caught those corroded cables and might not have said, that this needed to delay the launch but it would have been on the report yeah i think TransEd is trying to get 100 on their safety certification because that's what they need right now and i think the fact that this isn't concrete pillars smashing this is just running some new wires that had oxidized which is a fairly normal thing to happen shouldn't happen This should be weatherized cables of course but I think with how sort of innocuous this is in the scale of things and how they're being proactive in it, I think it's really good news that we're close and that they're ready to get that document and they want it to be an A++.
1: Yeah, if they're looking for the Clean Bill of Health, that's potentially interesting. I hope that's the case.
0: Given the history of issues and delays (laughs) on
1: this project, I'm just going to be a little less optimistic than you. But I suppose that would be the best case scenario. We won't know if that's the case until... You know, they do open the line and then we don't see any other maintenance issues crop up for, you know, whatever the expected period of time might be.
0: And even if they do open up the line, we still won't know whether I was right about this because that's the nature of the P3. It's a pretty yeah. opaque process that we never really get to look into.
1: OK, so two, two questions for you, Troy. I want to go back to this. So number one. We have other trains with cables, right?
0: <laughs> we do. We do. Confirm.
1: How, how how did we have cables that are oxidizing? It's not like we've never had cables run in the city of Edmonton before.
0: I am not an engineer. No. Um, and I, so I hesitate to give an engineering explanation for this. But what I will say is that the nature of engineering, people often ask this question of like, okay, we've been building trains for 200 years. Why is it suddenly that Edmonton is reinventing the train? And I think what people miss about engineering is advancement in engineering allows us to do to do the bare minimum. The high level bridge has existed for 100 years because it was incredibly overbuilt because we didn't have the engineering knowledge to do those load calculations Mm. to build with smaller components. Had we built the Valley Line LRT to the degree that we would have built a train 200 years ago it might have cost $30 billion. But the fact that we're getting a $1.8 billion line comes from these engineering practices that allow us with the minimum number of materials and people to build a thing that is safe and effective. So when you're building on that razor's edge, it is a lot easier to get it wrong. You have less of a failsafe. You have less of a buffer. That is my not an engineer layman's understanding of why does this keep going wrong?
1: I like it. I can buy that. I think that makes sense. I think your comparison to the high-level bridge is a good one. Okay, so then my second question,
0: 140 kilometers of
1: cable, they said? On this a 13-kilometer uh, line. 13-kilometer line. You could run that cable around the entire length of the Anthony Henday twice <laughs> at 140 kilometers. Where is all this cable, is my, is my question.
0: <laughs> if I was speculating, you know, there's... It's like when you're doing an Ethernet run in your house, there's probably like source, like it's probably not bi-directional cable. It's like one cable for one direction, one cable for the other direction. And then when you weave through certain underground tunnels, you know, it probably gets high. Plus like, you know, whenever you're terminating the cable, you put six inches of it so that you have some flex. Maybe it all adds up when you nickel and dime it.
1: I guess so. Yeah.
0: Yes. I bumped on that number. I'm like 140 kilometers of cable. Where are we putting all of this? Is it just... Like the New York Stock Exchange, where they just add spools of cable to delay it because of right. they want to slow, high frequency <laughs> traders LRT signaling. Yeah. 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 The other thing that I think is interesting to talk about is the council reaction to this, because it was exactly as you expect council reaction to be, which is, oh, no, this is horrible nothing we can do about it and also
1: don't worry it's not costing us any more money
0: for sure which um i think you and i are on the same page that the big cost is both reputational and lively i want a train right yeah like the opportunity cost exactly of not having the train what would what kind
1: of impact would it have on edmonton if that train was running it's not about how much is coming out of city taxes or the budget or whatever to pay for to pay for the train. that We know that that's covered by the agreement with TransEd.
0: On that note, one thing that I hadn't seen widely reported, because I discovered it this week, I found out exactly sort of what the penalty scheme is for TransEd. Um, and this was reported by the Edmonton Journal quite a while ago in sort of just, you know, an offhand remark. But essentially, the Valley Line costs $1.8 billion. TransEd gets half of it during the construction period. So, you know, $900 million. And the other $900 million is given in installment payments of 30 years for when the line opens. So, um, you know, 30 years times 12 months, that's 360 payments. And the penalty structure is basically every month that TransEd is not opened past December 2020, when the line was supposed to open, they simply forfeit one of those payments. The journal didn't go into details about how much that payment that they're forfeiting is. But, hey, I have a calculator, Mac. I can divide $900 million by 360 by my rudimentary napkin math transit is forfeiting 2.5 million dollars every month that this train is not open
1: right so it's been a three-year delay so it's about 10 percent should be 90 million dollars
0: right that's what they're out if this structure is to be believed and if there is no sort of like behind the scenes suing of the city or
1: or ramping up or some other schedule for deployment of those payments yeah
0: it's one of those things, a P3 with a private contract, we'll never know quite for certain as the public. But yeah, my best understanding is that TransEd has given up nearly $100 million of their payments and every month it's not open, it's another $2.5 which is not nothing. It does make me a little bit happier, not as happy as I would have been to have a train <laughs> in December 2020. Indeed. Speaking of boondoggles, the Downtown District Energy Initiative got an update this week and maybe someone at the city's cringing and very upset that I just transitioned with speaking of boondoggles. But Mac, every time I hear about a district energy system in the city of Edmonton, my monorail radar just goes off.
1: I don't think it's as much of a boondoggle as you do. I think it's a, one of those things that the city actually has the ability to to pursue to try have a positive impact on climate change and emissions reduction and everything. So I'm I think that's okay. What was up for discussion and and approval this week, of course, is that because this thing has been going on for a while, the first phase has had increased costs. So it's another $7.7 million. And that's partly for scope changes, partly just for inflation. And it's partly already under construction, right? The district energy building is under construction with the expansion of the Winspear Center downtown. So we're already kind of started down this path. And so unsurprisingly, that executive committee approved that additional funding uh, to keep the project going. And it's essentially a green light now for EPCOR to, you know, keep design and operate and eventually get this thing going. There's going to be three buildings connected to this initially, and then they'll expand it to about 50 buildings once it's fully operational, which is like a significant chunk of downtown when you think about how many buildings there are. Now, try. I will say, I don't know anything about district energy systems or what this means, really, but I kind of am intrigued by the idea that, you know, I always wonder, why don't we have things under the sidewalks to melt the snow and ice and more efficient use of uh, of, of cooling systems and HVAC, or like we vent things in random places all the time. Probably it has nothing to do with that. But getting all these buildings connected to this system that promises to have an impact on climate change, I think is a good thing.
0: Of course, with district energy, I think one of the greatest examples locally is the University of Alberta. They've got a central heating and cooling plant. And if you go in the winter, you can see that one section of the river that's always melted. That's because Mm -hmm. that's the outflow of their cooling and heating system, which will warm up the water, melt the ice. And it's such a potent resource. Granted, we probably don't want to boil the North Saskatchewan River. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, that's, I think environmentally, that's shaky ground or waters to be on. But the idea of, you know, using our situation and using the natural resources availing to us to make climate focused goals. And my jargon alert is going off a little bit. I suppose we should explain what a district energy system is. It's essentially just a big boiler system. A bunch of city buildings are connected to one energy source, and that can be water that's piped for heating and cooling. These buildings, instead of all having their own HVAC, they share these resources between multiple, and then you get economies of scale.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good overview. Troy, here's what the City of Edmonton's uh, you know document on their district energy strategy says. It consists of three main components. One or more energy centers to produce thermal energy, a distribution piping system to connect those centers to individual buildings, and energy transfer stations at each building to supply space heating, domestic hot water heating, and or cooling. So a boiler with pipes, I think is a <laughs> fairly good uh, description of of, uh, of what this is. And we have two, right? Because, of course, we're building the other one in Blatchford.
0: Of course. And that concludes our boondoggle segment um, <laughs> with the mention of Blatchford. And that leaves us with a hard transition to our last item of the show. And that's a story that Taproot did this week about the, a mayor's panel arguing for the economic benefits of equity. Tell us all about that.
1: Well, this is interesting. It's, the mayor always does a state of the city address, of course, every year. But it's a one-time deal. Uh, This year, Mayor Sohi has organized a series of conversations, or I suppose the office, a series of conversations to explore some of the issues that he raised in that, you know, lunchtime session. So it's a recognition that you only get a short, short amount of time up on stage to make your case. You could explore those things more fully, and so this first one was all about the economic benefits of equity. So he got into things like childcare and affordable housing, and you know several of the things that we've heard the mayor talk about at length during his term already. And you know he pointed out that there's an economic argument here, and then they had a discussion about this with a with a panel of people. Um, but he said that an economic multiplier survey done by the province suggested for every dollar that we invest in affordable housing. We get a dollar seventy-four in total economic output. So it's not just that people have dignity and deserve a home, and you know all of those things. It's also that there's an economic economic benefit from having people housed. Is the point of, uh, of what he was trying to get across with this session, I gather.
0: All of this sounded very great. I found myself when I was reading and listening to this, growing a little bit frustrated because we hear about it all over the world. There's constant studies about, you know, how diverting people from the justice system and the healthcare system saves us dollars. How every person you put on a bike saves us dollars versus cars. We understand all of these cost-saving benefits, and yet constantly, belligerently, across all orders of government, even the ones that espouse this, we choose the more expensive option. It, it always strikes me as a little bit frustrating that we can have these panels, these think tanks, these thought leaders talking about it. And then on the other side of it, it's just like, we really don't tend to make those choices. I think
1: you're right. I think the example they used in this panel to counter that was childcare, which is interesting, right? Because the people who support that directly benefit from subsidies in childcare in a way that they don't when we build affordable housing, let's say. We've got this sub you know, these heavy subsidies for childcare. There's there's real value there. And one of the panelists who's with the Business Council of Alberta, Scott Crockett, said that he's seen data on the federal $10 a day program and shows that it led to new people entering the workforce in Alberta than in any other province. So like there's real economic benefit from that. And I think the difference is, you know, people who are in positions of power and who have the ability to influence those with uh, power directly benefit from childcare subsidies in a way that they don't on many of these other files. If we do something to directly, you know, invest in reducing homelessness or opioids, you know, that doesn't do anything for the, uh, the person who's not personally facing those issues on a daily basis.
0: And of course, cynically homeless people don't tend to vote uh, with the same amount that uh, mothers and fathers of atomic families tend to.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, of course, this was one of several panels that will be coming up. And how will you find out about these panels? Well, Mac, of course, it will be with The Pulse. We've told you about this before, but this is Taproot's daily news briefing. It tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning, comes to your inbox before you even get up, unless you're absolutely early birding, getting the worm too early, just sleep in a little bit. It'll, it'll show up at 6 a.m. That's early enough. And you'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, coverage of business, tech, foods, the arts, and much more. If you're up at 6 a.m. and you need a little bit of whimsy to get you through the day, there's a little bit of that thrown in in The Pulse too. So, you know, cranky people reading The Pulse at 6 a.m., there's a little bit to just get that smile on your face. And of course, you can check that out at taprootedmonton.ca or just subscribe and it'll be in your inbox. No need to go to any domains whatsoever. Or rely on Google to send it. (laughs) And of course, you should subscribe to Speaking Municipally because um, who knows how long it will be before all of the big media orgs obliterated off the face of the earth. You need to be in your podcast app getting this podcast because otherwise it may be impossible to find in the future. This is just hedging your bets against the future C18 world. So we'll see you in your podcatcher. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking municipally.